Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You were such... Uh, an incredible storyteller as a performer. Uh, and you also managed to instill life in several different characters, sometimes all at once, which was unheard of, essentially. You would just be able to come out as different characters and we'd all be 100% on board. <laughs> it was kind of unprecedented in wrestling. For a while, I was portraying all three characters. And on one fateful night, Royal Rumble, January 1998, portrayed them all in the same match. So that was, can I tell you when it comes to your children, not, uh, you know, we say in wrestling, putting over what we've done. When my youngest son, Hugh, he started becoming a really big fan, but he didn't accept that his dad had been a big star. He looked at me and goes, dad, were you ever in the Royal Rumble? And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get over with I'll this. I'll just show him this video. <laughs> not only was I in it, I was in it as three different characters in the same match. And he looked at me and said, and you still couldn't win? Like, there was nothing I could do to appease that child. On today's episode of Yang Speaks, professional wrestler, actor, and genuinely awesome guy, Mick Foley joins right now. Oh my gosh, I am so pumped to welcome, maybe in my mind, the greatest guest to Yang Speaks in our history, WWE legend, New York Times bestselling author, activist, childhood hero of mine, the one and only Mick Foley. Mick, Mick welcome to the pod. I'm so excited. Hey, hey thank you, Andrew. Man, you are raising my stature in my children's eyes like tenfold with this uh, interview. One of my, uh, my, my causes is trying to make parents cooler for their own kids <laughs> because like, like, like for whatever reason, our kids just, you know, don't, don't value anything we do. Uh, so I, I want to break down first my first exposure to you, which is that I was a big time wrestling fan growing up. And so the first time you hit my TV screen was as Cactus Jack in WCW. Yeah. And like turned up on, on, on my TV and I was like, who's this guy? Like, what are his moves? And your <laughs> moves essentially consisted of just being more punishing and taking more punishment <laughs> than, than, than anyone, anyone else. I was like, man, this guy's like putting his body on the line all the time. 
Um, so just letting you know that, uh, you know, I, I grew up a fan of yours and I just cannot believe that the, the freaking wrestling career uh, you had. I mean, like you're one of the all time greats. Um, can you talk about your origin story? Uh, you grew up in Long Island, not that far from where I grew up. I grew up in, um, you know, a suburb of New York City in Westchester. Uh, but how the heck do you get started as a pro wrestler? Um, you know, I think you were uh, a high school athlete, but when did you think that you were actually going to do this for real? Oh, well, I just, uh, I think about my junior year or maybe sophomore year in high school, I really fell in love with uh, the art of pro wrestling. I, I, th- I thought w- when I entered that it was far more art than it was uh, uh, sport. And then I found out in a hurry, I thought I can cover up for my lack of uh, uh, physical attributes with a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> really, I did, you know, I was able to add that, but I remember the first time I went, I went for a training session with Dominic DiNucci, uh, just north of uh, uh, Pittsburgh in uh, Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Uh, so when we hear Pennsylvania discussed as being a battleground state, I have literally been, I've, I've wrestled more in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia than any of the other states because there was no athletic commission in Ohio or West Virginia. So I'd say 40 of my first 50 matches took place in those two states. But I was a college student in Cortland, New York, as a sophomore, when my father, who was the athletic director at my old high school, told me about a, an independent show taking place. And he knew that I wanted to be a wrestler. He insisted that I uh, stay in college. But he told the local promoter, a guy named Tommy D, got to give Tommy D some props, that his son was interested in wrestling. And Tommy said, well, if he comes to the show, I'll talk to him about how he can uh, get started. And at that point, there were only a handful of wrestling schools in the entire country. You couldn't just Google wrestling schools like you could now. So yeah. I met this Tommy D. Uh, he told me that if I was willing to work on his ring crew, that he would have me work out with a seasoned veteran, really respected guy named Dominic Tanucci, who was a tremendous uh, amateur wrestler. So uh, if the deal was if I set up the ring by myself, I would have to go 250 miles maybe it was 200 miles from Cortland, New York to, uh, to New York city. And then, uh, uh, Tommy D was the only guy I'd ever met who had a ring. He didn't have a ring on his truck. He had it in a storage area, big yellow storage. You might remember this. It was like right where Brooklyn met Manhattan and it's not big yellow anymore, but it's still a storage building, but it was a hideous looking yellow building. I'd have to go up on the eighth floor and piece by piece, take several tons of equipment, out of storage, put it in a freight elevator, bring it down, put it in a truck, a rented truck, drive it to whatever venue we were in one of the five boroughs or Long Island. And if I got the ring constructed by myself before the fans came in, he would have Dominic train me. So the very first thing this Dominic Danucci did, he said, uh, okay, I'm not going to do the Italian accents. I'm not good at it. But he said, I might throw it. You're giving me a forearm. And I said, okay. And so what I did, Andrew, I reached back with this forearm and like simultaneously brought my left foot way up in the air and then stomped my foot down as I barely even touched him. And he looked at me, he said, you think that's a forearm? And I thought it was a trick question. I was like, yeah. And then he wheeled me around. And I'm going to tell you, he never deliberately injured me. Like he never hit me in the collarbone, the jaw or the ribs, but he proceeded to wear me out just by pelting me with forearm after forearm. Uh, in the chest, pectoral, what would have been pectorals had I owned pectoral muscles. 
And (laughs) just one by, you just, uh, my body started sinking down turnbuckle by turnbuckle until all the breath was out of my body. And then he looked at me and said, that's wrestling. And I thought this, this, you know, I'm in a lot of trouble because I had no idea it was going to be that physical. And had I not, already told my college uh, housemates that I was going to be a wrestler repeatedly hundreds of times, I would have quit on the spot. And also when he finally told me uh, maybe three, four months into that training that he had some guys, he was training outside Pittsburgh. If I'd had a GPS or even a Rand McNally Atlas with me and seen that Pittsburgh was 350 miles away, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation because I never would have done it, but I loaded up my, uh, Ford Fairmont, and I took off for the first of probably a hundred trips uh, that I would do during the course of my junior and senior years. Not a hundred, but probably sixty or seventy, as I was there about three out of every four weekends. And so, while my college classmates were going to spring break and enjoying themselves on the weekends, I was sleeping in my car and uh, you wow. know just learning the trade. You hit on something important, Mick, which is that uh, people ask me the secret uh, of entrepreneurship. And I tell them, just tell everyone, you know, you're going to do something and then you don't have a, a choice. <laughs> yeah, don't keep it a secret. It's good to keep something secret, especially in the day of uh, social media. I say, like, just keep a diary, write down these thoughts in a diary. Don't put them out there for everyone to see. You might regret some of that stuff. But when it comes to your ambitions, yeah, trumpet them. So you have to live up to them. You have to live up to them. It's true. So you talked about uh, how you thought, hey, maybe I can cover up my lack of athletic ability with like my flair for the dramatic. And you went on to write several New York Times bestselling books. Uh, were you a creative kid? Were you in plays? Did you write? Uh, like, what, was there already the sense that uh, you had this other strength? Several books on the bestseller list. Two of them hit number one on that list. So uh, that's it. Oh, there, there we go. Number one, New York Times bestseller. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. My first two, but there's a life lesson to be learned because at, at one point I was two for two, two books that hit number one. And then with the bestsellers, I was like five for six. And now I'm like a major leaguer in a slump. My last five books have not hit the list, but I've been really proud of them. So I think there's a lesson to be learned that you just do your very best. And you know, my son, Huey, when he was 10, wrote a wrote a story for Santa and we ended up self-publishing it and uh, and just distributing copies. And I told him I was every bit as proud of that book as I was of the book that sold, you know, a million copies, which was uh, Have a Nice Day. But back to what you were saying. Yeah, I was really creative. My mom saved my writing. And when you look at it, like even as a kindergartner, I was way ahead of where other children were. And you know, sometimes I look at that. And I thought there was a one something I wrote in first grade that seemed like it was written by a sixth or seventh grader. And I remember a book cart coming around. The sixth graders would come with a book cart. And then once a month, you were allowed to purchase a book. And I pointed out the book and the guy said, you can't read that. And I said, why? He goes, well, you can't even pronounce it. And he pointed to a word, S-I-O-U-X. And I said, Sue. So it was a book called... <laughs> <laughs> these were the Sioux. So I was always interested in history. And my mom had this little, uh, you know, mini notebook. I think there's a technical name for it. And she would list the books that I read. And uh, I just looked through it a couple months ago. And it was almost a book a day, small books. Wow. But I was sure. uh, really encouraged me. And uh, without my mom reading stories to us and encouraged me to read and write, you know, I don't think she really fostered my creativity in that way. 
Well, it, it's one of the things that makes you unique, Mick, because uh, you were such uh, an incredible storyteller as a performer, uh, and you also managed to instill life in several different characters, sometimes all at once, which was unheard of, essentially. You would just be able to come out as different characters and we'd all be 100% on board. <laughs> it was kind of unprecedented in wrestling. I just looked off to my right. This is my cameo video uh, compound here. And so I've got uh, the uh, the dude love uh, bandana and wig with the glasses. I've got the man, <laughs> a separate wig for mankind. He wouldn't have his Nita hair. And so I just, I, I, I love, be, you know, becoming those characters and they're kind of caricatures of the characters at this point, but it was always fun to try to take people on a little bit of a emotional ride that way. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You hit a degree of stardom or success in WCW, uh, and then you had a, another stop in one of like the bigger indies, and then you showed up in WWE. And I remember this as a kid. You showed up as Mankind. There were these yeah. vignettes. They had you uh, feuding with top stars, really. Like I think it was Undertaker um, or, or someone pretty elevated immediately. It was Undertaker, yeah. Yeah, so I, I was watching this and being like, so I'll, I'll tell you what I thought as a kid. I'd be like, holy shit, Cactus Jack is now <laughs> mankind in WWE and he's feuding with The Undertaker. So, so that you know, that, this gets interesting. That must have felt like hitting, hitting the big time as like a wrestler coming up. And you went through a freaking grind to get there. I mean, you went through a lot of indies, like a lot of wear and tear. So what was it like when you were premiering in WWE uh, which must have been a, a culmination of a childhood dream at that point. It was pretty terrifying. You know what? Maybe for the sake of your viewers, I will show them what Mankind looked like, all right? Yeah, so, yeah, please. It's a Mankind character. Now, this the mask wasn't a an Amazon, something you could order on Amazon. It was a leather mask, and my hair was long at that time, kind of wild. And so, you know, and it was this character where I realized that by only shielding, you know, by obscuring part of my face, I can make facial expressions work for me with sideward glances and things like that. And it also 
prevented people from really seeing deep down into my eyes, which, were, you know, they say they're the window to the soul. So I would say it was about every six months, especially because I was clearly putting my body on the line. And when WWE came out and announced that wrestling was entertainment, not competition, a lot of people thought it was going to be the death knell for the business. But now, especially with the success of uh, UFC and MMA in general, had we continued to promote what we did as being the real deal, and then people saw that you can't do an Irish whip. Like you've never seen an Irish whip into the octagon or, or an elbow drop or any of those things. But by uh, allowing people to appreciate it for what it was instead of knocking it for what it was not, people could see, all right, this guy's really putting his body on the line for our entertainment. And then there was almost this like telltale moment, usually six months in, where they would see through or past the character and be like, oh, I think he's a nice guy. And, and so it was hard to deny when I was doing so many things for people's entertainment that I really cared about what I did. And that I think people drew the conclusion that I was a nice guy and that mankind with that mask, Andrew, it allowed me at first, I, 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 I disliked it immensely to the point where so, even so after, was this a character that WWE said, Hey, you're going to show up and here, here's a mask. Here's like, a this, persona, this is what or? happened. You know, uh, I went to visit Mr. McMahon and he had this, um, illustration of a character with a mask that looked more like Leonardo DiCaprio in the man in the iron mask. And what happened uh, a year or so earlier, the undertaker had suffered a fractured orbital bone in a match. And instead of just taking time off, like a normal human being would, he wanted to continue wrestling, but they needed something to protect that bone. And they came up with a bunch of drawings and one of them that was not used, but that Mr. McMahon liked, was the template for what would later become the mankind mask. So he had this idea in his head of a mask. He had an idea on paper of a mask. And Jim Ross, who was the uh, uh, president or executive in charge of talent relations, had been, you know, steadily trumpeting me as a potential talent. But Vince McMahon did not see me as looking like a star. So Bruce Pritchard told me this story only about six or seven years ago for had I known it. 1995, when I first met with Mr. McMahon, I, my feelings would have been hurt. He said that, you know, my name came up and then Vince, he slammed his hand down on the table and said, all right, damn it. I'll bring him in, but I'm covering up his face. And that was how I <laughs> gained entry. Harsh. That was how I gained my entry into WWE. But I have to believe that Undertaker got on board and saw me, he knew me from WCW in 1990 and followed my career and felt like, although I was not as tall, not nearly as tall or big as him, that we could have a great uh, a feud based on like psychological warfare. And so uh, without The Undertaker, again, you and I are not having this conversation. Yeah. So you have this legendary feud with The Undertaker um, with that results in this Hell in a Cell match where you get thrown off the top of the cage and it's le a legitimate like three-story drop or, or something where like watching it. It was 16 uh, feet, you know, like uh, people said 40, 50 feet, my goodness. And it might as well have been 40 or 50 feet when I was up there looking down because the people genuinely look like ants down below. I couldn't believe, uh, you know, I was terrified. 
I was really terrified. And I, I, I told Mr. McMahon that I'd been up there in the afternoon. I was comfortable. But the truth is, I'd never gone up there. And while I was looking down, The Undertaker's music hit. And I know that every eyeball in the place is going to be on, is going to be on him. And I looked over the top. Oh, man. And Andrew, like, I rarely curse in real life. But uh, I think in curses. And all I was thinking was, you got to be blanking, kidding me. There's no blanking way. And the entire time he was making his way to the ring, I was thinking, how can I climb down this cell without destroying my career? And I couldn't think of how to do that. So I just stayed up there and hoped for the best. So you wind up uh, taking this incredible bump off of the top of the cell. You land on a table. And then there is this now iconic image uh, of you and it seems like a tooth is somehow like gone through your your, your, your lip but it looks like you're smiling uh, and uh, and that really emblazoned itself in the minds of a lot of wrestling fans you're like this person is so committed that it seems like there's some kind of like dental surgery <laughs> on, on offer and, and they seem to be enjoying it at least that, that was the impression well, that, uh, you, you know, know that definitely was can I take you behind the scenes as to what I was actually oh, aiming for? Uh, I mean, I was out of it. It was only about uh, two years ago that I saw The Undertaker. We were doing an appearance together in the United Kingdom. And I said, how did I manage to let you know that I thought I could continue? Because he leaned over and there's a, a saying in, in, in WWN and wrestling, go home means, you know, this is go to the finish. And he just said, go home. And under any normal circumstance, I would have thought that I would have, first of all, followed whatever the undertaker said. But on that one night, I don't know, something made me feel like I was capable of continuing. And he said, I just kind of mumbled like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And so he went old school. You might know what that means. The undertaker, six foot 10, 320 pounds, or maybe around there. He may have been high 200s, 290, 295. Because we, we do exaggerate a little bit. He was probably 6'8", 290 in re, real life, but a massive man. And he took me by the wrist. He started walking across the top rope. He usually comes off with a big forearm. And as I mentioned, I was limited physically, but I usually really played it up. I'd be wildly thrashing, you know, with my arms and body mo motion. And that video just shows me like just like a big sloth just standing there. But I knocked him off the top rope, and when he went down and sold, as we say in the trade, like the uh, the, the cobwebs started disappearing, dissipating, and I started getting a grip on where I was, and I realized that, you know, what happened, he chokeslammed me through the cell. Neither one of us thought that the cell was going to give way like it did, and so I crashed through, and I was knocked unconscious, and there was a – now, this is where we know medical modern science and what we've learned about – concussions if that were to happen in the modern day wwe they just stopped the match and that's the right move but fortunately in a weird way that was not the move that day um because we had this incredibly surreal uh experience where we're trying to piece together a match when one of the participants is no longer conscious and so there was this whole world that went on during the 42 seconds i was out so, so you're saying that uh, that neither of you knew that the cell was going to give? <laughs> that you were just supposed to be at the top of that, that cage? We thought it was going to gradually tear so that the, the last thing I said to him before we went out to the ring was, 
you might have to choke slam me five or six times before this thing starts to give. And instead, I went through that thing like a knife through butter. And the chair that I brought up on top of that structure followed me down, hit me in the face so that, as I said, I, I collapsed. I, I The cobweb started to dissipate and I was kind of like sitting against the, the, the bottom and second turnbuckles. And I realized I had this big wound underneath my lip. And I just thought to myself, you know, if you could find a way to take your tongue and stick it through that massive wound and wriggle it. <laughs> this is terrible. Some, I, even then I was like, oh, that's going to make for some captivating TV. But as it turned out with the beard and the blood and the, the wound wasn't as big as I thought, you couldn't see my tongue at all. But it looked like I was smiling. Uh, uh, yeah. And Jim Ross said, look at that. He's smiling. And it really became this indelible image. It really uh, was. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you're like concerned about the human being's well-being and then it looked like you were smiling. I'd be like, oh, I guess he's all right. <laughs> was, you know, what was the sense of things. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So you did something that at the time seemed impossible, which is you take this mankind character who, you know, just seems like this menacing uh, boogeyman type. And then somehow he becomes sympathetic. And then somehow Mick Foley, the human being, starts uh, like uh, emerging. Uh, and and then these other characters get introduced, uh, you know, Dude Love being one of them. And then you have an alter ego um, then you have Cactus Jack. So there's a, a period when you're appearing as any of the three, <laughs> like one of the blues is the other one shows up. I feel like WWE can never have seen any of that coming. Like you're this mankind character. Um, how much of this was your own creativity or input? Like when did, do you think that uh, the WWE de- decided to believe in Mick Foley and invest in you? Because it certainly didn't seem like it was, it was that way from day one. Was it because of the Hell in the Cell match and all of the, uh, currency you gained uh, from uh, from that with the fans? 
I think it was actually about a year before that. So I, you know, uh, Mr. McMahon may not have been on board immediately, but he definitely pushed that, that mankind character because I was in the semi main event or main event feud with the undertaker, uh, for my first several months with the company. And I always had a strong position, but he never, I was always told that you can never really become the biggest star you're possible of being until Mr. McMahon personally becomes a fan. And so, I mean, fate kind of intervened in a strange way. I don't know, maybe it was just a circumstance. But I was having these great matches with Shawn Michaels, who was a champion. Shawn, they may not have been great, but they were very good. Shawn had a back injury. And so as his opponent, realizing I've got, you know, the, the most valuable tool in the company in my hands, I was making a point to make the matches as easy as possible for him physically while still giving the fans as as good a show as I could. And so we were able to have some really good matches without putting him in peril. I would play up the character. I would use these two fingers. Oh, they were a weapon. I would go to the throat. And Sean was so sympathetic that I didn't need to be throwing him around. He would go an entire match without what, you know, what we call a bump. And we were really having these good matches. And Sean said to me, he goes, don't take this the wrong way, but is this how you always imagined yourself? Because the Mankind character, like you stated in 96, it was really dark. Uh, and I, I laughed. I said, no, I, I wanted to be you. And he kind of looked at me puzzled. I said, I mean, not Shawn Michaels, but I, I told him about this character I created, Dude Love, when I was 18 years old, who was everything that I was not. He was confident. He was cool. The women loved him. And when Bruce Pritchard was uh, Vince McMahon's right-hand man, he overheard the conversation and he went to Vince and he said, Mick Foley has this character he created and he's got video of it. And so Vince, uh, he wanted to do, he wanted people to understand me, not just the character, like to his credit, uh, he understood that the real life story I had was more interesting than the fictional portrait we'd kind of created together painted together as mankind so he said we want to do an interview with jim you and jim ross we want it to be as yourself and i said vince i've got a lot of work tied up in this character like it probably terrified you a little bit when you were a child right i said i don't want to just give into that and explain that it was all a character and he said well mick we really want people to know you i said what if i give 100 honest answers but i do them in the character of mankind and he said do you think you can do that? I said, oh, yeah, I, I know I can. For everything I lacked physically, you know, I made up for with a self-confidence that could border on delusion. But I think I was always on the right side of that fine line. And that night, you know, what unfolded was just really special. Uh, at a certain point, they had to change tapes. It was dark in that studio in Stanford. I didn't even know Vince was there that night. And then out of the darkness, I heard a voice that said, this is outstanding. And from that point on, he really believed in the character. He want, he called me up at about 6.30 a.m. because he barely, he barely sleeps. Uh, I was living on the Florida Panhandle at that time. And he was like, hey, pal, how'd you like to be dude love? And I said, just once? He goes, from now on. And so he wanted people to, he wanted me to live out that dream. Then he found out how important the Cactus Jack character had been allowed that to come to life in Madison Square Garden, which was the, that was September of 97. That was the arena I grew up hitchhiking to and taking trains to. And so he allowed these things to happen to where I could, on that one night, we'd spent uh, 12 hours, you know, that afternoon 
against a green screen, creating this memorable conversation between all three of the characters. So uh, we introduced Cactus Jack, who ended up getting a phenomenal reaction in Madison Square Garden. And so for a while, I was portraying all three characters. And on one fateful night, Royal Rumble, January 1998, portrayed them all in the same match. So that was, can I tell you when it comes to your children, not, uh, you know, we say in wrestling, putting over what we've done. When my youngest son, Hugh, somewhere around 2006, 2007, when he started to become a really big, no, 2008, he started becoming a really big fan, but he didn't accept that his dad had been a big star. He looked at me and goes, dad, were you ever in the Royal Rumble? And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get over with I'll this. I'll show him this video. <laughs> Not only was I in it, I was in it as three different characters in the same match. And he looked at me and said, and you still couldn't win? Like, there was nothing I could do to appease that child. Well, I remember that uh, event. Uh, and during this run, I have to say, like, you transcended a lot of what else was going on. Um, and it seemed like it really was your humanity or essence actually coming through. Like, people rooted for you just Mick Foley, the human being. People felt like they knew you in a different way than they knew other performers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, build that connection with you. Like, I think it's one reason why your popularity and likability just span decades uh, and will stand the test of time. I think you're either the or one of the most beloved figures uh, in wrestling because everyone just feels like they know you as a person. Uh, and now I know you a little bit as a person and, you know, you're the same person that, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's not, you know, I mean, you're, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Dwayne Johnson may be a little bit more beloved universally, uh, but there's nothing wrong with being second to Dwayne Johnson. Which brings me to a question uh, I, you know, I, I raised with uh, some other performers because I'm just going to throw this out to you, Mick. And you and I have talked about politics somewhat. We bonded when we were trying to swing uh, the Senate races in Georgia, which, we won. So that was the, the best yeah. thing ever. Um, but, uh, but what I was saying to folks uh, as a wrestling fan growing up uh, and a fan of comedy that there is, and you, you've been a comedian as well. I mean, you're like a creative and a writer and performer uh, that there are real overlaps between pro wrestling comedy and politics that they, yeah. they, they really do touch on a lot of the same things. And what I say to folks is when I was running for president, I would show up to the bowling alley or the restaurant in Iowa and just talk to people about, you know, my hopes and vision for the country. And then you come back, uh, you know, a little while later and you hope that the crowd's a little bigger and you're just like going around uh, in, in uh, nooks and crannies. Um, and I feel like a lot of comedians can relate to that. And a lot of wrestlers could relate to that because you've traveled this country hundreds of times. You've seen towns that, you know, it's like, uh, you, you know, towns in a way that uh, others don't. Um, and so I pose this question to other people. If there was a pro wrestler who would make it in politics, you would be very high on my list, honestly. Um, but, but who, uh, though, I, you know, you, you might be too, uh, wise to actually run for office, but <laughs> but like um, who do you think of the performers you know uh, would make it in either politics or comedy based upon what you've seen? And you should know I channeled pro wrestling sometimes uh, when I, I was running for office. Where sometimes if you see um, some of some of uh, my rallies, like I actually have some kind of like pro wrestler affectations. <laughs> I did not know that, but that's nice to know. 
Uh, first of all, I want to mention that um, uh, a USC fighter, Leslie Smith, she was one of the biggest proponents of the Yang Gang. Uh, and she and I bonded. Love Leslie. Le- yeah, right? Leslie nearly lost her ear in a UFC fight. And I reached out to her. I'm part of that. Uh, there's the left ear, the right ear. Lost part of that 27 years ago in Munich, Germany. And I said, like, Leslie, it gets better. And then the story made like international sporting news. And she and I bonded over that experience to the point where I said, Hey, let me talk to you on the phone. Because sometimes you need a good old fashioned phone call. She was really down about having lost the match. And I said, hold on, wait a second. Let me call you. And I was trying to tell her about those incredible images that are in people's minds. Uh, you know, when I grew up, there was a picture of a quarter, a giant of New York giants quarterback, YA Tiddly and this little, streak of blood going down his uh, uh, a mostly bald uh, head. And it was so iconic. He's there in an empty field on his knees, uh, holding his helmet. And I said, Leslie, people aren't going to remember who won. They're only going to remember that you continued fighting, despite the fact that your ear was nearly lost. And my son, Mickey, uh, Mickey is my son on the autism spectrum. You and I just had a chance to mention that we have something yes. in common. Mickey goes, are you talking about that? The woman who almost lost her ear, I said, yeah. I said, what did she do? I knew darn well she didn't quit. Did she just quit? He goes, no, she wanted to keep fighting. And I said, you see, this is a child. I can't remember how old Mickey was at the time. But I was like, all he remembers is that you were nearly injured and you you kept on going. So I know I, that was kind of like a little segue there. But when, it, but she's a huge and fan. Le- Leslie also is an aspiring comedian, too. I mean, uh, um, I love Leslie Smith. She came to my show in the Bay Area, and Leslie's great. If she wants to do it, hey, I'm going to hit the road again. I'm making up. Uh, I, this is not meant as a cheap way to get people to check no, out. please, please. People want to know. But I'm hitting go, the Midwest. I'm uh, doing the dates that were canceled because of the pandemic. So I'm uh, hitting Iowa, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. Uh, I, I think those four states. And people can go to realmickfoley.com and check out my events. And it's a one-man show where I, you know, it's a largely a wrestling-related show. Uh, I did. You know, it's nice to make people think, but I don't do current events. I don't do politics because I'm there to make people smile and uh, send everybody home happy. Not to get them, uh, you know. I, I, I willingly lost a pretty, you know, I uh, lost some people along the way. Because I felt like it was worth speaking out against what I thought was, uh, you know, the country going down a really bad road, potentially with um, President Trump. And I'm glad I did that. But when I do my shows, that's not something that I want to do. That makes perfect sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is a torn electorate and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, And you just want to bring people together. Uh, You know, I get it. I mean, uh, comedy, I think, is really unifying. Uh, You know, I think there are different uh, ways that people... Uh, can experience life together. And when you travel the country the way you have too, it's like you see people more as people and not, um, you know, different uh, political ideologies. At least that was my experience um, on the road as well. (laughs) I I did one thing which teased being political, but clearly was not. And I sensed the crowd that night. I said, you want to know? (laughs) That's funny. Like you like touched a nerve. I touched on it. And right away it was like, whoa, that's like the third rail. And it was something I didn't write it out. I'm convinced that there's something there. But I said, in this world where you don't know who you can trust, I'll tell you who you can trust. You can trust Joe. And all of a sudden, like half the crowd tenses up or boos. And I said, hey, I don't know him that well. But I saw him. He was carrying a handgun. And I just happened to say, hey, Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? 
And he said, I'm going down to shoot my old lady. I saw her messing around with another man. And then I jumped out like, he didn't have to tell me all that. You know, like this is a guy, he, he didn't even tell me geographically where he was going. And then I tried to say, that would be like saying, hey, Colonel Mustard, where are you going with that candlestick in your hand? You know, I'm going down to the conservatory. And there was something there, but it was so obvious to me that people were going to, you know, the nice thing, one of the great things about comedy, it's like, tension and release the same way that professional wrestling is you want to build up a certain amount of tension wrestling you do it with a heat segment bad guy gets some heat on the good guy the release is the you know the uh the big comeback sometimes you tease a comeback you have what's known as a false hope spot and you try to in that way take people on emotional roller coaster and it's the same way you know when you're telling stories you want there to be some tension but I was like, wow, the amount of tension that one little tease of politics created wasn't worth that very minimal. <laughs> like, it's like, ah, yeah, no. But enough people who do it, you know, well. And I went to one show, a friends of mine thought that I was going to be offended because he was, you know, a comic was, I guess you could say, you know, kind of conservative. He was teasing uh, you know, progressive values, but he did it in a way, Jimmy, Jimmy Schubert, he did it in a way that was just like side splittingly funny. So I think there are ways of poking fun at things that we can all agree are silly or overdone. And then you exaggerate something and dip, but it takes a real pro to do it well. So uh, there was a subject uh, I was asked about, and I said uh, about covering in comedy. And I said, it's kind of like trying to hit a slider low and away. It's possible, but the odds are you're just going to look foolish and strike out. So it's better just to lay off that pitch. And so I learned by sticking to things, you know, uh, that are universal, that most people can find a little bit of themselves in when I do my stories, that I do send people home uh, happy. And that really became a concern of mine, you know, when the economy took that big hit in 2007, 2008, I thought people are really, they're making a decision to put their money down at an investment in their time. Some of them have to get a babysitter. By the time they buy a few drinks and dinners, you know, they've got a couple hundred dollars invested. I, I want everyone to go home happy. And so that's why I could never be a politician because, you know, just knowing you're going to lose 50% of the people or four, I mean, you know, Joe Biden now is 49% much, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like they viscerally hate you. They don't just disagree with you. Some people just viscerally hate you because you don't stand for the same things they do. Well, hopefully we can do something over the next number of months and years to try and uh, break up the polarization. I'm very passionate about that uh, because I've been around enough of the country to know that uh, there are wonderful people of every political background alignment and uh, folks that want to uh, pit us against each other ideologically. You know, I, I just don't think that's the right way forward. You were a singular figure in part because you had such this incredible creative output. Um, you must have felt a lot of pressure when you wrote that first book. Uh, did you imagine it going to number one on the New York Times bestseller list? Like, you know, like what, what was that process like? Well, what happened was WWE had landed a um, publishing contract with uh, Regan Books. Judith Regan had her own imprint with uh, Simon & Schuster. And the four books were me, 
Dwayne Johnson, Steve Austin. Oh, man, maybe there were only three. I thought there were four. And Steve and Dwayne were, they were much bigger stars than I was. I always thought I was chosen to go first, just to test it out. <laughs> You're like the crash test dummy. Let's see how yeah, Exactly. If there was going to be a failure, it was going to be me. And uh, I had a writer who's really respected sports writer, but he hadn't been involved in wrestling for a long time. And, uh, and he was writing it as if it was, you know, what we call in wrestling kayfabe, like it was hundred percent real. I just thought we're, we're really, uh, we're really in- insulting people's intelligence here. And so I would find things I, and I would say to him, okay, what if we did this differently? Like I said, okay, at this point you said, when I was 10, I wanted to be like the Fonz. And he said, well, I said, well, don't we need to explain who he was? And he said, well, who was he? So I said, how about this? How about you say when I was 10, I wanted to be like the Fonz, comma, uh, Arthur Fonzarelli from TV's Happy Days. There's no doubt about it. The Fonz was the man. He could fix a broken jukebox with a slap of his palm. And the Fonz had women lined up down the hall. I go, okay, that's good. And he's writing it down by hand. I said, one of the small pleasures of my life is seeing my own children watching the Fonz on Nick at night and thinking he's every bit as cool as I did. Okay, Michael, that's good. And I said, and then put hay with like four Y's at the end. He said, I can't do that. I said, why not? He said, it's not a complete sentence. So, so I asked Edge and Christian, you know, two wrestlers, you would know. And what did the Fonz used to say? And they said, hey. And he said, okay, I'll do it, but I don't agree with it. And so the more suggestions I gave him, the more I thought, I like the way I phrase things more than he does. And so the strange thing about that book, Andrew, is I actually started it. I started the second half first. I thought, all right, we'll do the first half that he wrote. I'll do the second half. And then within a few days of writing, I thought I'm going to do this whole thing. So uh, they wanted 60,000 words. I turned in almost 200,000 words. And I was so heavy on words that the first chapter of the first, the first words of the first chapter says, I turned 18 in the summer of 1983. Like I didn't have time to talk about my childhood. And uh, uh, I know that uh, there were people in the book world that thought there's no way wrestling fans are going to read. Uh, uh, it was, I think, 180,000 words. And Judith Regan was a real big proponent. She liked like the segues I would go off and the tangents I went off on. And she recognized what she thought was a pretty unique writing style, very conversational. And so I didn't feel what I felt pressure was to have a book that I could be proud of. I knew my career was coming to an end and I just wanted to be proud to have my name on something. I didn't feel pressure to hit the New York Times list because I didn't think that was uh, <laughs> in my introduction yeah. that if I, I hoped it hit the best time, bestseller list, because I know that would make my mother proud. And for the rest of my career, I could go on as Mick Foley wrestler slash bestselling author. And then in its first week, it hit number three, right below uh, Tuesdays with Maury and something else. Uh, uh, I think it was uh, uh, the, the guy who wrote uh, Angela's Ashes. He had a follow up called Tiz. Second week, I hit number one. Uh, Dwayne's book came out like a month later, and at one, and his went on to be number one. But at one point, I think he was number one, and I was number three. So only Tuesdays with Maury prevented a clean wrestling sweep. And it was just, it really meant a lot to me because people were not only enjoying it, but they knew that I had written it myself, which was extremely rare. 
at that time, the thought that, uh, sure. I mean, heck, you know, you, uh, it, it's a very unique capacity, Mick. I will say too, that, um, I, uh, write my own books in part because I don't know any other way to do it. And I feel yeah. like people can tell the difference. So the, the fact that you've had such a prolific, uh, writing career now you've published, I want to say 10 books, uh, both children's and, uh, autobiographical and fiction, um, but a lot of it must have been born of the fact it's like, wow, you know, like I hit a home run first time at bat that you could just be like, oh, <laughs> I can do this. I did. Yeah. And you know what it did? I, I alluded to some of the books I did that were not big successes. Um, and that's OK. You know, you learn as much about yourself, probably more with failures. And that's certainly the case in wrestling. And when you're on that comedy stage, I just want to go back to what we were saying about comedy. Um uh, right now I do a storytelling show and it's, it's, it's going to work well with wrestling fans and even the non-fans like it, but going out there on the stage and trying comedy when you're new at it was harrowing in a way that you know, wrestling certainly was, but even more so in the sense that when you're failing on stage, you're very exposed up there. Very exposed. Oh, yeah. It's really, I remember going to an event. I had given up on comedy because uh, it was just, I wasn't enjoying it enough. I hadn't done it in six months. And I was asked to, uh, if I would like to accompany the wounded warriors to an event in New York city back when I was living on long Island. And it was an event at the Gotham comedy club. And I said, Hey, you know, I used to do some comedy. If you want me to do a set, just let me know. But they never told, they never told me one way or another. So I'm sitting with the warriors in the first table off the stage. And they said, Hey, we have somebody here who's going to do a guest set, former WWE champion, Mick Foley. And I went up on stage without a real set. I just thought I could wing it like it was a wrestling promo. And I started dying such a miser miserable death on that stage. And I was following people like Judah Friedlander. At, yeah, like, who are really, really honed. And yeah, these people are doing, doing these laser yeah, sharp seven yeah. minute, eight minute sets. And uh, um yeah, it was, wow, it was one really great star. Dan Soder, I think, did a set, and these guys are really nailing it. I go up there trying to follow that, and at one point, I just looked out at the crowd, and I said, if I was in a pool, I would ask for a life preserver because I'm dying up here. I'm drowning up here, and people kind of cheered. When I got off stage, Judah Friedlander was a friend of mine, and he grabbed me, or else I never would have gone on stage again. He goes, dude, it wasn't. I was a bro. He doesn't say bro. He says, dude. Dude, it's not as bad as you thought. And I go, come on, Judah, it was awful. He goes, hey, dude, dude, like you've got something other people don't have. People actually listen to you. He said, dude, anyone else goes on stage and doesn't get a laugh for four full minutes, they're done. He said, but people listen to you. Goes, dude, don't get me wrong. You have to find a way to make this stuff funny. And then he reaches in the back of his jeans pocket. He pulls out a stack of index cards like this. And he goes, dude. If what I do on stage looks like it's easy, it's because I've worked really hard to make it that way. He said, I'll help you learn if you're willing to put in the work. And so I started going to New York City about two nights a week for free. And Judah would drag me along to five or six different clubs in a single night. That, that's freaking New York comedy, man. You get so many reps. People get so good because they'll do like half a dozen shows the same night and they'll try yeah. the same joke and calibrate it and then they'll just keep honing it and honing it um like that that's the magic of new york city comedy clubs and the reps it's so important not only in comedy but also when it comes to doing those 
uh, promotional interviews in wrestling. And uh, I had the benefit of failing on, on much smaller stages, both in comedy and in wrestling, so that when I did get to WCW for a second run in 1991 and later in WWE in 1996, I had a lot, a of, lot, rep- lot of reps. Yeah, totally. And I believed it, in myself. Same thing happened to me with uh, various TV news interviews where I was running for president and no one gave a shit circa 2018, but you're kind of like fumbling in the dark for a while and no one's really noticing. Uh, and then by the time, you know, you're, you're uh, on bigger stages, you had enough reps where, it's, uh, you know, you're more comfortable because like the first time you're not comfortable at all. And then like the, you know, thousandth time, then it's like, all right, I, you know, uh, but people just didn't see the first 500 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some of the guys now, I know because my son, my oldest son, Dewey, is a writer for WWE's NXT show based out of Orlando. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. He works his heart out there. Uh, in a lot of cases, he's working with these really seasoned uh, independent wrestlers who've never given promos. So they've got the character down as far as being in ring, but they are just kind of grasping. And so my son has to write promos for them that sound like them, that they can believe in, that they can invest in and convince people is their own. And that's a, that's a difficult balancing act. Wow. Look at this. Your, your son infusing life into these uh, up and coming wrestlers. That's actually kind of a beautiful story. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. You might not be able to talk about this freely. Um, I, I, uh, took issue with WWE's classifying various people as independent contractors. Oh, did I mention uh, which... my son? Did I mention Andrew? My son is employed by WWE. <laughs> no, 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 no. I always thought I was an employee when I was there. Um, you know, I, I we questioned it. Uh, we seemed to fit every aspect of being. Yeah, an they independent. got a lot of freaking control of, of a lot of stuff that's going on. They do, and there's some, but there was some loophole that allowed WWE um, legally to be uh, considered as independent contractors. So, you know, I'm sometimes asked about wrestlers union and I, and I talk to people who, you know, on both sides and uh, the well, one Leslie thing is part of this. And then yeah. The oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. like the Kurt flood of, you know, mixed martial arts. Like yeah. she really put everything she had on the line. Kurt flood being yes, the baseball player. Yeah, yeah, Leslie's great, and she's taken a lot of you know punishment online yeah, because of nice. it. And so she's got what yeah. an enormous heart, and that same heart and soul was on display when she wanted to continue fighting, despite her uh, hideous ear injury, is on display even more so because she's willing to go out there and try to make life better for the people uh, who Amen. come afterward. And, uh, you know, I don't know the inner workings of mixed martial arts like I do uh, wrestling. So there seems to be an issue that when guys are no longer employed by one of the big companies, in order to do the smaller shows they want to do, almost all of them would not be able to create shows if they had to do it by union standards. It would be too expensive to run shows. Um, and so I understand that side of the argument where I don't understand, what I don't understand is why we can't be considered a part of the SAG AFTRA umbrella because on if, screen hours and hours a week. Yeah. You know, that would the, like, you know? and I asked about it and they said, well, you know, it's not like an actor's union where there are, uh, you know, 10,000 actors, you know, who fit. There's a couple hundred wrestlers uh, who, who would fall under that umbrella. And from what I'm told, it's not 
worth it for SAG or AFTRA, SAG slash AFTRA to fight for us because there just aren't enough of us for it to make it make sense. And if, and if I'm wrong and SAG after is fighting for us, I apologize, but what I understand we don't have the gravitas and it would take four or five of the top people in the entire business to stand up. And uh, I don't see that happening. No, it's very difficult for someone when they're in that kind of position to turn around and, and um, you know, uh, fight for people who are, might be, uh, years after them, uh, you know, or in different situations. But as you can tell, like, I, I want to see uh, performers um, treated uh, more like the uh, folks in other industries. When I was leaving WWE in 2008, the talent didn't know I was leaving, but the uh, management did. And I said, can I just, uh, can I address, you know, the talent? And they didn't know what I was going to say, but they gave me that opportunity. And I said, uh, and I was talking to them about funding their own retirement. I said, yes, all of which we had a retirement plan. I said, we do. We just have to fund it ourselves. And I said, I know that a lot of you in your 20s, you think you're going to live forever. We don't do well, Andrew, like believing in our own mortality. Because I've said that if we did everything according to a, you know, a risk reward analysis, we wouldn't get in wrestling because the risks are so high. <laughs> yeah. The chances yeah. of making it are so small. Uh, and, you know, we, almost all of us get uh, hurt uh, physically and all of us get hurt emotionally along the way. It's emotionally a very bruising ride. I said, but you owe it to yourselves to put some money. And I told them about this SEP IRA. You can fund your own plan. If you're lucky enough to hit upon three or four big years in your mid-20s, you can really lay a background. And while it's nice to think that, you know, someone's going to come around and grant us a retirement program, um, that's not likely to happen. And so I urge them to get there to, to get, uh, thankfully the Obama, you know, uh, affordable care act went into, uh, motion. And so people with pre-existing conditions like myself, or even people who are younger, who are wrestlers who already have pre-existing conditions, they can grab, uh, health insurance at a young age and keep it. Don't let it lapse, uh, fund your own retirement you know, as actively and aggressively as you can. Every year I put the maximum in there. Uh, and so when I was done, I, I asked, uh, one of the guys came up, Gerald Briscoe, and he said, that's the most important thing they'll hear all week. I said, do you think any of them will listen? He said, well, if one does, that would be worth your time. One does change their life, man. Yeah. Someone, someone's going to come so, to you later and say, and then, hey, I actually You know, you. this is where we, t you know, politics and the blend, you know, the crossover. Uh, we're really big on hammering home points in wrestling, the constant repetition of single catchphrases. And uh, this is, <laughs> this is where I worry that maybe we rubbed off on the former president in a way that benefited him where he was like, wow, catchphrases. Let but me. Trump is very, very WWE, you know, he had like, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. So I, I said to edge when we had the big match in 2006, a uh, big hardcore match, in the aftermath, I told Edge, I said, if you and I both independently of each other claim that this was the greatest hardcore match in history, within three weeks, people will start to believe it. And they did. And that's great for us because we've gone down in history now as having one of the greatest hardcore matches in history, largely because we advertised it and trumpeted it as such. 
But on a negative, all you have to do is say something for three weeks repetitively, and a lot of the public will accept it as fact, no matter how fictional it is. And yeah, I am. I do. Uh, you know, I I do mourn the fact that that has been the case for a lot of the country. They just pick up on you know just the constant the constant catchphrases, which I see through in a heartbeat. But a lot of us in this country don't. So I think the more it's said, the more likely people are to believe it, no matter, uh, you know, whether it's the big lie or the perfect letter, you know, you go back in time and he is like on a timetable, you know, collusion, you know, for three months, perfect letter for two months, uh, you know, stop the steal now for six this months. works, man. Yeah, there's just some uh, human behavior uh, and the uh, workings of our minds um, and wrestling takes advantage of it in a particular way. Politics does comedy in a different way. Uh, it, it's, it's been fun for me to try and identify some of the overlaps. Uh, you know, I mean, I, obviously I, I'm uh, more of a political figure. Uh, how do you feel about the wrestling industry's future? Um, because one of the things I, I picked up on, and, you know, I, I obviously uh, grew up a huge fan and still have friends in the industry, so uh, the WWE's uh, revenue now flows through the streaming deal where now they're folded into Peacock and the live gate doesn't seem as important, especially now because, you know, it's just been out of like one location for a while. Uh, and that the economics of the business seem to have changed very, very fundamentally. Um, you do have AEW, uh, you have TNA, which you were the champion of as well. Um, and so, you're, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how... Uh, healthy or unhealthy the industry seems to people like I, I naturally root for AEW because I know some people over there um, but also because an industry feels healthier if you have viable oh, sure. uh, competition yeah, yeah uh, it sure does I don't know the inner workings of WWE and I know things have changed a lot since we were dependent on the pay-per-view numbers. And at that point, it was a lot easier to go to bat for yourself armed with those numbers, especially. Yeah. yeah especially if you knew what one of your colleagues had received for a similar number. And I was not shy about addressing what I thought were financial <laughs> shortcomings on my checks to Jim Ross when he was head of talent relations and to Mr. McMahon. Uh, and a, on a lot of occasions, I would receive something extra, sometimes substantially more. Uh, but these days, I don't, you know, with the streaming, this is where I want to say. I have say, no idea what the basis for any argument would be. Now. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to be able to go up to WWE and say like, hey, man, this billion dollar deal you hit on with Peacock. Uh, maybe I should be, uh, you know, remunerated for that. But I don't know. How <laughs> well, it's, it's one of the things I said. I talked to Chris Jericho about this because you look at these matches that are part of the archives. You yeah. know, like people sign up for the streaming. It's like, how much are Chris Jericho's wor matches worth on, uh, you know, on their archives? Like, is Chris seeing any royalties from that? And he's like, well, hell no to the second question. <laughs> and so then if you think about all the performers, yourself included, I mean, if, if you think about all the classic matches you were a part of, and how many people are watching those uh, and then what the uh, revenue share looks like. Cause back in the day when someone bought like a mankind, uh, you know, dollar t-shirt, like you might see a, a little bit. Yeah. That. But now and I still do now streaming. Is not a, oh, good. Yeah. Streaming. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It would be nice if uh, the company factored us in to that equation. I believe that was a billion dollar deal. Yeah. And uh, you know, they've found a way 
uh, to stay ahead of the curve every step of the way. And uh, for a company to turn in their most profitable year during the pandemic is really, uh, you know, quite telling as to what they do. And they managed to keep a show on every single week during the pandemic without crowds. And now they're filtering in and I guess they're going back out on tour in July. So I really appreciate what they've brought to uh, the country and the world as far as uh, keeping some sense of normalcy during the pandemic, but it would be, it would certainly be nice to factor in some of those key players. You know, Mr. McMahon, he gave about a dozen of us uh, stock options, you know, when the company went public. And uh, I noticed like when I go in to do something for the company, you know, they are treating me really uh, respectfully as far as the financials from what I received. And uh, while it would be nice to uh, be part of that revenue stream. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good based uh, I'm not everybody's in that same boat as I am where they can, uh, you know, continue to have an income based on what they did, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But uh, personally, I'm doing pretty well, but I do think there should be some type of uh, revenue sharing plan for everybody as part of the Peacock deal. Um, uh, so you do seem like you've had an incredible second and third career, fourth, who's counting? Uh, you know, you, you're a parent, uh, you know, you, you're alive, which, you know, uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of the performers you came up with uh, are no longer with us. You seem remarkably well-adjusted, um, <laughs> you know, like uh, in terms of the scheme. Um, and you and I talked about how the, that we're both uh, special needs parents. Uh, we both have boys um, on the autism spectrum. Uh, can you talk about why do you think that you do seem so happy, wholesome, well-adjusted, uh, like in the rest of it, when so many people, and you talked about how uh, pro wrestling is an incredibly bruising ride and career. I mean, it's physically, emotionally, uh, it burns so many people out in a way that, uh, you know, they don't come back from. Um, like, uh, I'm, I'm curious why you think that you uh, are so resilient and human um, uh, through it all, uh, you know, and whether the, there's anything that someone can take from that. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me speak about this. I think that I have, uh, I'm in a different situation than a lot of the guys. I always thought one of the most difficult things in the world would be to go from having your action figure on the rack next to Spider-Man and Superman and Batman one year, and then be listing professional wrestler on a job resume the following year, because for whatever reason, you know, fans have continued to support me, you know, 20 years. It's been 10 years since my last match, uh, nine years since I was in the Royal Rumble, but 21 years since I stopped wrestling full time. And I went four years from 2000 to 2004 without a match. And I did team up with The Rock at WrestleMania, made occasional comebacks at one point, too many comebacks and then hung it up for good nine years ago, but fans have continued to remember me and support me in a way that they have not for a lot of my peers. And so I told Mr. McMahon, I said, and I even wrote this in a later book, I said, the WWE is as close to the land of Oz as any of us could get in a real life setting, you know, where Dorothy says some of it was horrible, <laughs> but most of it was wonderful. And that's the way I feel about WWE. And I think when people leave, they remember the parts they didn't like. And then as time goes by, they come to look at it as the best times of their life. And I was always fortunate that I could walk back and forth between those two worlds. So that if I were to call them up today and say, hey, I'd like to be on a house show, 
you know, I'd like to make an appearance. I'd like to come backstage. I'd like to bring my children. There'd be no problem when they start doing shows. I called them up one time and I said, hey, I'm doing an event in Dublin, Ireland uh, the night after your, your house show. You know, would you mind if I showed up? And I did. And they put me on the card, you know, put me on the card to make an appearance and address people. And so I've always had that opportunity. And he Vince even said that this was my playground and I could come back to play anytime I wanted to. So I've always loved not only having the opportunity to come back anytime I want and be part of it, but to be recognized, um, you know, before the pandemic, you know, on a daily basis. And then with uh, uh, the beauty of cameo videos and, you know, allow me to become those characters, to share stories with people, to put smiles on their faces. And even though I'm not seeing the instantaneous feedback, I get a, a message from somebody and they say, this is the best gift ever because I put a lot of myself into it. So I'm lucky, Andrew, in a way that other guys are not. So I can't speak to what they go through, but I do know uh, there's a major, major withdrawal that comes with leaving yeah. WWE and then leaving wrestling behind. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you, you, you always have one foot in it. Uh, you know, you always have things that you can do. And because of your relationship with fans, and it sounds like WWE, then like it, it's not uh, the same kind of process that would occur to other performers where, uh, you know, no longer on the shelf, you're no longer uh, employed. And there, there are so few uh, avenues for a, a pro wrestler. Um, you know, there are only a few major players are these indies and the indies probably haven't even been um, open for the last number of months. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that, that makes sense, Mick. Well, you are a legend. You're someone that I'm so thrilled uh, to be able to even spend this time with. Uh, and, and you, you were, I think one of the biggest like human success stories, uh, I think in all of pro wrestling history, like that really, I can't think of anyone else who's, done what you've done who's had the impact that you've had who's generated the kind of love and affection and loyalty that you have and you know the fact that you can still uh make people happy uh in ways big and small in person remotely like in any way it's really just a testament to who you are uh and uh, i'm now yeah, i'm i'm thrilled to see what's next for you uh because you're still going it, it's really awesome can i plug something as we say oh please yeah uh Oh, this uh, video airs, our interview airs the day. Oh my after. gosh, yes. The A&E of a freaking biography of Mick Foley. He's getting the A&E treatment. So you know you've made it when you get the, the full biographical package. Yeah, it, it, it premiered. I, I, I'm i really excited about it. Uh, the director and the crew. And he hasn't even seen it. So he's going to watch it the same time I as you watch it. 20 minutes and I really loved it. I'm usually a harsh critic of my own. And the director and the whole crew, they were trading emails and they just said that it was one of the most enjoyable things they'd done. And they really felt like it was a great piece of television. And so it will probably echo some of the sentiments you shared. First of all, there were only eight of us that got the treatment on A&E. And it's so much more appreciated in 2021 than it was when they did an initial one in 2001, partially because it's 20 years after the fact. And I realized how lucky I am and partially because they're just doing a much better job on these A&Es. It's not the same narrative. You know, they had eight different directors doing eight different projects, all bringing their own vision to the screen. And again, I'm up there with, uh, you know, my peers, uh, some of the biggest stars ever. And to be chosen in that elite group is really something special. 
And to know that people are going to discover this who are not wrestling fans, because I think it is a really yeah, sure. human story. And then they can appreciate it. It's, you know, a young guy, uh, you know, living out his dream, pursuing his goals, you know. And like I said in our interview, you know, I'm lucky to have had so many failures so that I can appreciate those successes. Well, Mick, I cannot wait to see the A&E treatment. Uh, anyone listening to this, if you want to get the entire biography uh, and arc of Mick, go to A&E and check it out. I'm sure they'll play it any number of times. Uh, Mick, such a fan and admirer, and uh, even more so now. Thank you so much, my friend. Check it out. A&E biography coming this week. 